Content note. This episode mentions plots that contain rape, sexual assault, eugenics, and colonial violence. I'm Elena. And I'm Sophia. And you are listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoiler-full podcast where two scholars read pop fiction by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. Since this is the first episode, we should probably introduce ourselves. So I'm a philosopher by trade, a knitter by compulsion, and a reader by choice. By this I mean that reading for fun, I should specify, is something that I had to choose again in my adult life because it had slipped away from me, kind of like a spiritual practice that I'd let out to dry. I devoured books as a kid and frequently read well into the night and I got into trouble because I would much rather hide in my room and read instead of doing chores, which my mother did not appreciate. But as I grew up and started reading professionally, I was reading mostly nonfiction for my degrees, so I lost touch with that enthusiastic reader inside of me. So that's what I want to try and remedy with this podcast and why I'm excited to start this as a project. Because I'm coming to pop fiction enriched by my years learning analytical tools, the way I read now is completely different than the way I read as a child, and I'm excited to discover the reader that is me. I'm excited to meet the reader that is you too. (laughs) I'm Sophia, and I'm a comparative literature scholar, also a knitter by compulsion, a tango (laughs) dancer when it's safe, and an unabashed book lover. Growing up, I was determined to be a novelist because I found so much solace in novels as an only child. I pretty much never wanted to do anything else, just reading or writing. Then for college, I started out as a creative writing major, trying to turn the thing I loved into work, but the creative writing degree involved taking a lot of literature courses, and I fell in love with analyzing literature. So then I switched to being an English major, pursued my master's in English, and then took reading to a new extreme in my PhD. Comparative literature requires working, at least during your PhD, on literature written in three different languages. Mine were English, French, and Spanish, and I have to say, learning more and thinking more critically about where literature comes from, what language it's written in, and how that shapes it was really an enriching experience. It also means that I'll probably be permanently buried in an I-should-be-reading-this list, but this podcast is a way for me to take some time out and read some contemporary literature for personal pleasure, and that's been so much fun to get back to. So with that being said, should we get started? Yes, let's. So today we'll be talking All Things Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Mexican Gothic follows its young heroine, Noemi Taboada, from the lively social scene of wealthy Mexicans, Mexico City, oh, Mexican City, Mexico City socialites, to the isolated home of the mysterious Doyle family, High Place. Noemi must unravel the mystery of the British Doyles and their ties, literal and figurative, to the land around High Place in order to save her delicate cousin Catalina from her handsome but menacing husband Virgil Doyle. Will Noemi be able to figure out the Doyle's plans for herself and her cousin before it's too late? Or will they be trapped in high place forever? Today Today we'll be discussing colonialism in Mexico and the novel, as well as the gothic novel genre and Moreno-Garcia's adaptation of the gothic. We hope you're as excited as we are. So when reading Mexican Gothic, I think there are two key areas where some context enriches the text, and both are in the title. One is Mexico's specific colonial history, because colonialism immediately begins moving into the narrative from the moment we learn our protagonist, Noemi, is a dark-skinned, mixed-race character with indigenous heritage. Her grandmother, we learn, is Mazatec, which I think is important, because being able to name and recognize indigenous communities by their actual community names disrupts the erasure of indigenous peoples in the Americas. 
so it's political that Noemi knows her heritage is partially Mazatec. Much of the conflict in Mexican Gothic is predicated upon the conflict between mixed Noemi, who is identifiably Mexican in contrast to the British-identifying Doyle family, who collectively make up a powerful antagonistic force in this narrative. The Doyles are foreigners in Mexico who make no attempt to assimilate to the culture, so we have Mexican mixed-race Noemi, the very Aryan British Doyles, and then Catalina, who might be representative of the Spanish Criollo elite. A lot in the narrative suggests that Catalina lacks Noemi's mixed-race heritage. So right off the bat, some context to recognize is that prior to European colonization, Latin America had many, many different communities of indigenous peoples, of which the Mazatec are one. Then, Spanish colonialists arrived and spread across Latin America, and claimed the land by essentially either slaughtering or enslaving the people who already lived in Latin America. During Mexico's history, as the Spanish government officially withdrew, the French and the British both attempted to likewise colonize Mexico. As the settler colonialist turned criollos, which is the word for people of Spanish descent born in the Americas, tried to establish national sovereignty. That's a simplification, but I want to give Elena a chance to respond to me because I could babble about colonialism endlessly. No, please babble on. We had discussed off air how Noemi's physical appearance is not mentioned at length in the novel compared to other characters. So the mention of her dark skin and Mazatec heritage is even more salient, especially in contrast to the pale and morbid Doyles, which also explains why the plot hinges on their needing Noemi's fresh blood, even though they don't really recognize her personhood. For a heroine that's portrayed as being very active, we don't get much of a sense of her embodied presence. Speaking of fresh blood, actually, Moreno Garcia has a vampire novel coming out. Ooh. (laughs) I mean, yeah, she has mentioned, obviously, being inspired by Dracula and Camilla and those kinds of novels. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. It's a follow-up to this, I think. So... My impression of Noemi is that she's a little bit Mary Sue-ish, kind of an invitation to the reader to insert themselves into the space of Noemi, I find. Similarly, one of the things that kind of immediately threw me off about the novel was the fact that there's not a lot that feels particularly Mexican about Mexican Gothic Mm. to me. We're briefly in Mexico City, where we get glimpses into Mexican culture, but we're then quickly transported to this completely British environment where the people only speak English, even the workers were at some point imported from England, and where the Doyle family aggressively guards their British identity. So the conflict allegorically staged in this narrative is the conflict between the Mexican nation, which always builds its identity to some degree, honestly or not, on the idea that it is a modern, democratic, and mixed-race nation, embodied in Noemi, versus British colonialism embodied by the Doyles. This was one of the things that kind of disappointed me initially in the novel, because to me, Spanish colonialism is the dominant and systemic colonialism in Mexico. But to be fair to Moreno Garcia, it's not her responsibility to make up for the publishing industry's failure to publish Mexican voices in English and to fill in all of those gaps. And also her body of work as a whole, all of which takes place in Mexico, I think fills in the gaps where Mexican Gothic plays with and tries to educate North Americans about a different colonialism. I agree with your assessment that there isn't much to latch on to in terms of specifics of Mexican culture in the book. And that class of racial lines between Noemi and Catalina, and between Noemi and the villagers, for example, including Marta, the indigenous shaman, are not addressed. Instead, they kind of are lumping the plight of the local miners, who are a legacy of Spanish rule in the region, before they were killed by genocide in the hand of the Doyles, uh, they lump that in with Noemi's endangerment as if those two experiences were comparable. 
So I get the idea that they're both victims of the Doyles, but I would think that if Noemi stands as a symbol of violent assimilation, we need more context to make that leap comfortably. However, I do believe that Moreno Garcia does do a remarkable job giving readers a strong sense of place. She has mentioned that she was inspired to write this story after her visit to Real del Monte, a real site in the mountains northeast of Mexico City in the province of Hidalgo. And from what I could glean from my advanced cartographical research, that is Google Maps, and various articles about that region of central Mexico, Morena Garcia is pretty spot on with her atmospheric rootedness, which could open up a whole other discussion about colonialism's entanglement with people's land and belonging. Yes, so let's talk a little bit about that history of people's land and belonging. Officially during the 1950s of the novel, Mexico is what we might call a post-colonial nation. It is no longer officially colonized by the Spanish, French, or British governments, and importantly, the North American attempts to colonize have likewise ceased, so Mexico itself is under no threat. At the same time, the Doyles definitely represent the lingering presence of colonialism, and one of the ways we get this is through the eugenicist discourse that Howard Doyle is clearly preoccupied with. As in the United States, Mexico City is officially a sort of melting pot, but also like the United States, and as we see in the narrative, there are racial hierarchies predicated on European white supremacism, as it was used as an excuse to colonize the Americas and to disregard, enslave, and murder the people who already lived there. Our narrator, Noemi, is sort of an audience stand-in in this sense, professing very contemporary views on racial mixing and resisting the eugenicist propaganda of Howard, which we start getting early on when Noemi explores the Doyle Library. Actually, I recently read Libraries are a popular setting in Gothic fiction. I think we also hear from Howard at the first dinner with Noemi, where he um, starts expressing his eugenicist views. Yeah, he's just like, oh, yes, this great author. And she's like, yeah, that racist author. And he's like, oh, we're not on the same page about this. But, uh, well. Hell shock. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So shocked. Um, But yeah, I mean, it would make sense that libraries are usually used in gothic fiction because they are the home of the obscure and the infinite and are both comforting and dangerous. Like the idea that, you know, it's a status symbol to have a good library, especially in these settings. But at the same time, you can house a lot of dangerous or heretical books or things that... I don't know. I, I, I like to think of people who outwardly follow the mores of society, but ooh, they'll have some scandalous books in their library. In the scene you mention, Howard Doyle is explaining his eugenicist philosophy according to which white Aryan bodies are stronger and purer than brown bodies. Obviously, Noemi pushes back, and her display of vivacity prompts Howard to mention something to the effect that she is one of the good ones which is also relevant to the plot. It turns out that Moreno Garcia focused on eugenics during her master's, and it makes sense that she would include a mention of it here, but I felt it was a bit clunky and on the nose. There are other ways to have one's main character deal with racist ideology that feels more organic, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I wanted the discussion of eugenics to be more nuanced, maybe more subtly sinister in a way that I think would have enhanced the gothicness, which is not a word, of the narrative. Instead, we get a very straightforward allegory. I think it's important to emphasize that much of this colonial narrative is allegorical, 
I'm sort of the opinion following the novel theorists Mikhail Bakhtin and Georg Lukács, theorizing that all novels are largely modern national allegories. It doesn't appear to me, at least, that the Doyles have any grand aspirations for colonizing Mexico or taking over geographic region larger than that of their own home. Elena, did you pick up on any indication that the Doyles had the intention of colonial growth in Mexico? I guess part of the lack of ambition probably comes down to like their kind of crisis point of dwindling bloodlines. It's difficult to expand when no one seems to survive. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of them have a master plan, but I suppose Virgil does give off vibes of wanting to restore high place and its minds to something beyond its former glory, which might include annexing more of the immediate region as part of their dominion. But as you say, they don't seem to have any political ambitions and are certainly unconcerned with civilizing or educating the masses. Two reasons, along with evangelization, that colonizers have used to justify their acts of violence. For me, it all goes back to the land, to the mushroom. (laughs) The Doyles are tied to this particular parcel of land and are willing to defend it at horrible costs, including dying. Their act of colonialism is raw in its brutality and almost primitive because it's linked to blood, procreation, and working the soil. So you're seeing a kind of reversal of the stereotypes of primitivism to reflect on the primitive and brutal nature of colonialism itself. You're also stirring up in my mind the establishment of property rights as a capitalist and colonialist construct that Europeans imposed on the land in order to justify stealing it from the pre-existing inhabitants. And I think we're going to get more into this question of property rights in the next episode. Yes. I think ultimately, rather than literal colonialism, we get an allegory for colonialism with Noemi perhaps representing Mexico and the Doyles representing British colonialism. How many times am I going to say this in one episode? Or is it the legacy of colonialism? It's all an allegory. Yeah, just, I have a real thing for allegories, everyone, in case you were wondering. Pretty soon you'll just be saying along with me, it's an allegory for nationalism. Or is it the legacy of colonialism that its consequences continue to linger and fester in Mexico long after the end of official European colonial efforts? In the end, although the big bad is so clearly colonialism, like there's no way someone can read this book and not identify that line of interpretation. <laughs> like, it's it's very... She's not light-handed about it. I think I have decided that it's not about colonialism at all. Um, so bear with me. At best, the Doyles are an allegory oh, <laughs> for <laughs> the violent and monstrous nature of those who invest in maintaining absolute power at any cost. But really, they are a failed example of colonialism specifically because they are not seeking to affect the rest of the country. They have become addicted to high plays, and it has become their very existence. But they are cut off from the rest of the world, and they don't seem to harm those who stay away, including the nearby villagers. To me, for it to be a true allegory of colonialism, there would have to be some evidence of the ongoing harm the Doyles are perpetuating beyond their attacks on Catalina and Noemi. Maybe. That would be a good story to tell in a sequel, where we follow Francis as he tries, and probably fails, to disentangle himself from his Doyle identity as he makes his way through 1950s Mexico City. 
I do want a sequel. I feel like there's so much in this novel that's pointing towards the possibility. Even though people have said like there's going to be no sequel, but come on, it's not finished. We we anyway. still have the options out. Like we we still have at least like three possible storylines that we could write the next book. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the next step for Bookshelf Remix. We're just gonna move yeah. into fan fiction and quit podcasting. You heard it here on the first episode. <laughs> Uh, we are not committed to these medium people. <laughs> yeah, either that or we'll offer it as premium content. <laughs> Sophia and Elena's fan fiction of Mexican Gothic. Uh, the demon mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> but I do agree with you. Colonialism does become kind of too easy a bugbear in this novel. But I can't let it go. So... <laughs> I keep finding myself troubled by Moreno Garcia's choice of British rather than Spanish antagonists returning to colonialism because national identity ends up being so central to the narrative. Is it because British people are more recognizable like as white bodies and therefore also more recognizably white supremacists? Or is it simply that British colonialism is easier to isolate and pack away, to leave behind in High Place or in Real del Monte? Angel Rama, a now-deceased Latin American literary scholar who is hugely influential in Latin American studies, states in his work that even at the moments when the Spanish were colonizing Latin America, their power in Europe was already waning, and they had become a periphery within the European world. Spain and its population are often racialized on the grounds that Spain at one time had a large Muslim population. So there's a way that the Spanish have never been legible as white Europeans, which doesn't erase their own racist colonial projects at all. But I wonder to what extent Moreno Garcia chose British colonialism for both the fact that its consequences are less widespread, more limited, and also because it's more recognizable to an American audience. There's been some suggestion that part of the answer to this lies in the second half of Mexican Gothic's title, its genre, which is the subject of the second half of our episode. But we must leave you in suspense for now. After the break, we'll get into the ins and outs of Gothic literature. Do you have a book you want to recommend or a theme you want us to explore? Contact us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com or fill out our suggestion form in our link tree in our Instagram bio at bookshelfremix. Welcome back. Next, we're going to be talking about the second half of the title, The Gothic in Mexican Gothic. I have to say this novel hooked me from the title because I'm familiar with the gothic genre, I love gothic romances, and I was definitely curious to see what a gothic novel set in Mexico specifically would look like because I haven't read many works set in Mexico. (laughs) I also knew that gothic fiction tends to feature opulent settings, and I love that aesthetic of decadence and decay, of grandeur, but also the haunted edifices of a past. The child in me still really loves the fantastical elements of gothic fiction mixed with that kind of -of edge-of-your-seat suspense and sense of danger. I also thought 
This is going to be a different kind of narrative because oftentimes the stories that we get in English or that get imported for a North American audience are stereotypically either stories of poor and suffering immigrants or drug trafficking. And it paints a particular picture of both Mexico and Latin America at large as a place purely of poverty and lawlessness which isn't a full picture of Latin America any more than, say, The Wire on HBO tells the whole story of the United States. I know Mexico is a beautiful place with a fascinating history and a depth of culture that rarely gets covered in North America, and I immediately thought, oh, that's a perfect country to set a gothic novel in, while also being intrigued by the possibilities. Like, which part of the history will this novel focus on? Because there's so much depth and diversity there. So just starting there, what drew you to this novel, Elena? Were you a fan of the Gothic? And if so, why? I have to admit that my journey to loving Gothic literature and tropes has been a tortured one, perhaps appropriately. Mostly because I had internalized that it was meant to be chiclet in a demeaning sort of way. So I was a very self-righteous and stuck-up teenager who had a lot of opinions about how I should be spending my time, what I should be reading, and gothic romances definitely did not make the cut in my mind. So I would be curious to reread Wuthering Heights now, because 15-year-old Elena was full of a lot of self-righteous judgment at all the trembling and fawning. My love for the gothic really began when Jane Eyre came into my life. I really fell in love with Charlotte Bronte's writing and it allowed me to really delve into that gothic world while refining my instinctual critique of the tall, dark, and handsome love interest. And now I would probably proclaim my love of contemporary gothic tales like the CW's The Vampire Diary and Carmen Maria Machado's memoir in The Dream House. I have to say, a Mexican gothic made me want to read more gothic lit, and I do believe it's an excellent book to discover the genre if you've never tried it before. Jane Eyre was my favorite gothic novel, too. It was just my favorite novel, like, growing up. That was, if anybody asked me, so what's your favorite novel? It was always Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. It was just such a great novel. I remember when when she leaves um, Mr. Rochester's home, at one point in the novel, like just my heart dropping into my stomach. That book just kept me on the edge of my seat. It's full of so many different like tropes and well, not tropes, but like there's so many different storylines. There's so much to explore. Jane herself is such an interesting and complex character. I honestly, I don't trust people who don't like Jane. <laughs> Like, if you've never read it, that's one thing. But if you've read it and you're like, I don't like Jane. I'm like, ah, can't we be friends? I don't know. <laughs> I'll agree with that. And luckily, we can be friends because we both love Jane Eyre. <laughs> Yay! Uh, Even though I don't love Northanger Abbey. And you do. And I hate persuasion. <laughs> so <sighs> there's been a lot of talk about the Gothic and Mexican Gothic. Speaking of Northanger Abbey, a famous parody of Gothic fiction by Jane Austen. <laughs> In part because it's kind of a fiction lover's novel, consciously a genre novel, but Moreno Garcia identifies Mexican Gothic more in the horror genre of Gothic fiction than in the romance, which makes sense since she did her thesis on Lovecraft, one of the iconic North American horror writers and also a rabid racist. There's an interesting movement right now, it seems like, to kind of reclaim Lovecraft from Lovecraft himself. So we have Moreno Garcia writing her thesis and I think editing an anthology of female writers adapting Lovecraft. Then 
There's the Matt Ruff novel Lovecraft Country that was recently adapted into an HBO series that reframes Lovecraft through Jim Crow and through the eyes of an African-American family. It's a fascinating show, and I highly recommend it if you like the horror gothic genre. And then one more, a book that we're going to be covering in a few months, The City We Became, has a lot of references to Lovecraft as well. And just reframing it through the lens of a person of color experience, because Lovecraft has kind of set the standard for what gothic horror is or what horror is as a genre um, or horror fantasy, I guess. Moreno Garcia contrasts this with Jane Eyre, which she sees more as a romantic gothic, which makes sense. Jane Eyre, even though many people identify it as a gothic novel, even though it's a complicated mix of predominantly realist narrative with some gothic elements that sort of add suspense, mystery, and heighten the drama, uh, though eventually in Jane Eyre, everything fantastical is explained away. That's one of the reasons I personally love Jane Eyre, and in the case of Mexican Gothic, I kind of showed up to the novel expecting something more in that vein than in the horror vein, and I think that we, what we get is both. Elena, what do you think? It's funny that you mentioned that Moreno Garcia really pushed the horror angle over the romance trope. I have to agree that the romantic aspect was pretty absent from the book, in the sense that Noemi did not fall in love nor was the point of the book to find security in the form of a man. However, this does not mean that sexuality and its darker aspects are not part of the book, which is a signature, I would say, of gothic romance. It's like the kind of darker side of sexuality and of desire. So while Noemi is portrayed as a good-natured flirt and not a pure ingenue, the reader still gets an element of danger in the figure of Virgil. I have to say, I was really uncomfortable with the scenes of attempted sexual assault. I was not expecting that. I did not like that at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just questioned why it was necessary to include this trope specifically. It's definitely effective in being terrorizing, especially coupled with the fact that Noemi is unsure whether or not she imagined it. So it's the kind of sexual assault and coupled with the gaslighting that makes the novel very tense. So. I suppose it works on that side of things. But then I'm also thinking if someone is trying to say we're going against the kind of gothic romance, why would you choose to include this? So also, since we already have also Howard playing the role of a predatory villain, I was unsure why we needed Virgil being a rapist or an attempted rapist. And there's Also, the inclusion of a forced marriage. So in this non-romance plot, we have like romantic interests, tense sexuality, and a forced marriage. (laughs) So this not-a-romance has a wedding as a key plot point. Francis is not even a real love interest, partly because Noemi relies on him out of necessity, but mostly because he is so meek and has no personal resolve. He doesn't desire Noemi at all. He kind of pities her and feels sorry for himself. In the end, I think Moreno Garcia tried to have her cake and eat it too. She tried to dissociate herself from the female gothic, possibly for the reasons I used to stay away from the genre myself, because, you know, systemic misogyny told me it was inferior. But she kept a tenuous love triangle, or quadrangle if you count Hugo, which I know Sophia insists on, and playing the kind but safe and sexy but dangerous trope in the background of the actual plot. 
I do insist on Hugo. (laughs) And I also agree. (laughs) The novel ends up being both horror and romance. And I'm annoyed that in interviews, Moreno Garcia suggests it's more horror than romance because, like you said, the whole thing literally hinges on a marriage plot and it ends on a kiss. And correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a big consumer of horror, but I'm pretty sure usually everyone dies and the horror side triumphs. But back to Hugo. I'm really annoyed that the love interest in this novel ultimately ends up being one of the members of this emblematically white eugenicist family, while the Mexican men embodied in Hugo get written off really quickly as quote-unquote boys. And to me, I can't help but see this as related to the way that colonizers have traditionally painted the colonized as younger in an evolutionary sense, as in less far along in the process of evolving away from the animal and toward the human, with Europeans being the most human. So I found the way Moreno Garcia kept harping on Francis being a man really grating. Nothing against Francis. He's fine as a human being, I guess. I feel really neutrally about him as a gothic hero. I guess he's sort of the Edward to Virgil's super creepy Heathcliff, if you have read Wuthering Heights. Is it Edward or Uh her? I don't remember. But anyway. I don't remember. (laughs) Yeah. It starts with an E. I promise. (laughs) It's one of those E names. (laughs) British, British email names. Still, what makes the scenes between Noemi and Virgil interesting is the way the author plays with Noemi's sexuality, giving her a well-articulated knowledge of the difference between her own desire, so sidestepping the typical kind of slut-shaming you might find in a traditional gothic novel, where protecting every woman's Victorian virtue is of utmost importance, and Virgil's, I don't know, dream state rapiness? If Virgil is presented as handsome, he's definitely never presented as desirable. And I guess that's interesting, though I agree with Elena's point about, like, why rape? I feel like a lot of times in novels, it's kind of an easy way of building sympathy for for a particular character. And I really strongly dislike that. I feel like we need to maybe cut rape from, like, the list of tropes that people use for a while and ask everyone to like really think about what is it that you're trying to convey with a scene like this and are there any alternatives because it really does get used way too much and it's traumatic you know for the readers it is and it's kind of it is traumatic for readers and I'm just thinking now about the plot and it was really unnecessary like the attempted rape was still kind of implied in the idea of a forced marriage, mm-hmm. especially if they're using her to perpetuate the line. So if we kind of have that threat already. We didn't need to have that very explicit passage where she's being sexually assaulted. <laughs> like We did not need that. Yeah, and I feel like Virgil is kind of always lurking around anyway. So you already kind of get this sense of, the looming threat of the Doyles, whether it's Howard or Virgil. Yeah, I just didn't think you really needed to have it made so explicit. And I think that's sort of one of my bones of contention with this novel a lot of times is that it doesn't give its audience a lot of credit for being able to pick up subtlety and instead sort of ends up being like, just in case you hadn't noticed, uh, there's there's some sexual tension here. Let me be really literal about it. So, yeah, I wasn't that thrilled with it. I mean, I put it up there. Rape tropes are one of the things that will actually make me put down a book. She placed it correctly in the novel, just in the sense that, like, I was so far along. I was like, I'm going to finish this book. But a lot of times if I encounter, like, a rape scene at the beginning of a novel, I'll just, like, toss the novel out. 
because I just yeah I just think it's really lazy writing most of the time and it's kind of like okay if that's like if this is setting the bar for how you're going to like build a sense of connection between your audience and your characters then I would like to read someone with a little more nuance but I still Mm -hmm. enjoyed the novel overall to be fair to Maria Garcia like you mentioned it happened later in the book and I will also say the fact that I said that we could remove it and it would be okay means that her plot doesn't revolve around that so in that sense, she did include it, and I'm not happy about it, but it's not like the whole story revolves around that aspect, which in my eyes would have tainted the book. So it's still possible to enjoy the book and just kind of cringe over those few pages. Yeah. And one thing I re- did really enjoy about the book is that the way that it pushes back on the trope of the dangerous gothic her- hero. So, you know, Virgil, I guess, as sexual assailant as opposed to like tall dark handsome kind of pushy Mm -hmm. (laughs) hero who initiates our heroine into her sort of sexual awakening uh noemi gives a resounding no thanks to virgil's byronic hero of it all but all that is to say i agree that an awful lot of this novel hinges upon romance and romance tropes to 100 percent say it's not a gothic romance were there any particular moments that stood out to you since you were less interested in hugo did you find the romance side of the novel compelling I feel like in our next episode, we're going to get more into the horror of it all. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I sound like a terrible person for ignoring Hugo. And uh, but to be fair, he only exists in the first chapter. He's the guy that Noemi like goes on a date to to this like fancy, fancy dress ball. And when I say like, I don't include Hugo, it's because I guess I wasn't looking for him. He was kind of there to showcase that Noemi was being flirtatious and like she's a kind of like free liberated woman type thing and then I didn't feel I, I just didn't feel invested in Noemi finding a partner and I didn't think like Hugo came back often enough for me to care about him I will say that her not today Satan attitude towards Virgil felt very satisfying so I agree with you that in that sense, Moreno Garcia is pushing back against that trope. I am not super well versed in the horror genre, but I have read Dracula by Bram Stoker and played the eponymous character in a satirical play in high school, but that is a story for another day. And some Stephen King. And romance is definitely a factor for both of those male authors, even though their books are not usually categorized as gothic romance. So my inclination is to believe that the gender of the author factors into how a book is read, discussed, and marketed, and given highbrow society's explicit disdain for the romance genre, it makes sense that Moreno Garcia would do her best to present Mexican Gothic as a work of quote-unquote serious fiction, for lack of a better word, which is the product of the patriarchy, and that sucks. But I could be wrong, and I, I can't presume to know what's in Sylvia Moreno Garcia's heart, but maybe one of our horror aficionado listeners can enlighten us further on this subject. I will say as well with my reading of Hugo, I think I really like fleshed it out after reading our next book, Sex and Vanity, because that book does the reverse. And I'm really excited to talk about that one and the romantic hero in that novel for that reason, because I think it's a bit more It does more reparative work, actually introducing like a man of color as a viable romantic hero. And I just didn't find that in this Mm -hmm. book. And I think reading these two back to back 
really consolidated that for me where it was like why am I uncomfortable with this romance and then finally going this is why because because we actually need a novel that features like a viable male Mexican hero as opposed to a white British man whose family has like kidnapped you and tried to force you into marriage (laughs) and all of this other terrible stuff. One thing that definitely stands out to me in Mexican Gothic, and I think this is true of a lot of American Gothic literature across North and South America, is, so to be clear, we're talking about a Central American novel by a Central American author who now lives in North America, in Canada, and writes in English, which is in and of itself a fascinating choice, is that where in European Gothic fiction the irrecoverable past of the Gothic tends to be a feudal aristocratic past, whereas in the Americas, the characters are haunted by colonial histories and wrongdoings. Mexican Gothic definitely delivers on that, but it has a lot of layers of nostalgia and lack thereof. I know Noemi yearns to be a modern woman, so in that sense, she's kind of our classic modern character trapped in a Gothic puzzle she has to unravel in order to find her way back to a sustainable and unhaunted life. And I also find this novel has two histories, one it wants to exhume, which is the indigenous histories and knowledges of pre-colonial Mexico, and the second, it is essentially exercising, which is the colonial history. At the same time, as much as Noemi tries to combine embracing her mestiza heritage with a modern future, NMA and anthropology in the 1950s is an interesting choice. She does recover the past, in a sense, to make a more promising future. The Doyles are very much nostalgic for exactly the lost British colonial heyday that Noemi will ultimately need to fight fight against in order to find her way out of the gothic maze of high place. Agreed. And I'll definitely have more to say about the Mestiza identity in our Sex and Vanity episodes, but I cannot reveal all of my secrets here. Well, everyone, that's a wrap for our inaugural episode of Bookshelf Remix, your source for in-depth discussions of books by diverse and underrepresented authors. Elena, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Elena G. Mamoril, on Instagram at Spinoodler, and on my website, elenagotimamoril.com, E-L-A-I-N-A-G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R-M-A-M-A-R-I-L.com. It is long. It's my name. Deal with it. If you want even more of my voice in your ears, you can listen to my other podcast, Philosophy Casting Call. And you can find me posting at least three times a week on Instagram at The Metropolitanist or at Metropolitanist on Twitter. I also have a website, MaisonMetropolitanist.com. I post on all things related to my research areas on those platforms, and you can find my review of the book on The Conquest of the Desert, The Histories of the Indigenous Peoples of Argentina, which is a related subject. Maybe I can talk the same press into letting me review one of their books on Mexico. Elena, before we close out, will you do the honors of telling everyone where they can find more Bookshelf Remix? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bookshelf Remix and rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This helps more people discover the show. You can email us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com and our transcripts live on our Kofi website, which is ko-fi.com forward slash brpod for everyone. These are available for free for everyone and we will link that in our description. 
And while you're there, please consider supporting us. With your monthly support, we'll be able to offer bonus content like secret Slack or Discord, live watches, mailbags, and more. We will see you in two weeks. Until then, text a friend with a library card about the show. Text a friend who loves mushrooms about the show. And don't forget to give your bookshelf a good remix.